Don Loeb is a professor of philosophy at the University of Vermont. His published articles focus on the debate over moral realism. Don, welcome to the show. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Don, were you always a skeptic about morality, and how did you come to hold the views that you now hold? Uh, if by always you mean um, since my college days, the answer is probably pretty close to yes. Uh, I doubt I was as a child or even an adolescent, but um, since my college days, I probably was. And I, I suppose I started out in the way that lots of college students start out, a kind of naive anti-realist. Um, you know, when I do surveys in my class, I find that most of my students are either some kind of anti-realist or some kind of uh, moral relativist. And I probably was one of them in the beginning, but I just, um, the more I learned about it, the more I thought that there were more sophisticated arguments for the view and that the realist position didn't have, uh, wasn't entitled to place the burden of proof on, on the realist or anti-realist position. And you're a specific type of moral anti-realist. How did you come to hold the specific views that you now have? Well, so um, the two standard kinds of anti-realism or irrealism, I use the terms interchangeably, are um, one that starts with moral language and says that moral words aren't used to, or moral sentences don't express propositions, aren't making factual versions. So there's, in a way, nothing to be a realist about. That would be a non-cognitivist or non-descriptivist anti-realism. And um, an error theory, according to which moral sentences make moral assertions all right, factual assertions, but that um, they're all false. So in the same way that somebody might be an atheist, but not think that um, uh, God talk is non-fact stating, it's fact or fact asserting, it's fact asserting talk, it's just wrong, according to the atheist. That's an error theory of morality. My, my actually, my current, the current view that I'm most inclined towards, I I'm hesitant to say that I accept it because I think that there are certain empirical issues that uh, have to be resolved in order to know for sure. But the one that I'm most um, taken in by right now is what I call moral incoherentism, mm -hmm. which is a little bit like the first view, and it's a, it's a position according to which it's not that the moral words are used to merely to express attitudes or to tell people what to do or something like that. It's that they're used in so many different ways that there's really no coherent subject matter for moral thought to be about. Nothing that we're all talking about when we talk moral talk, or even that enough of us are talking about for any particular approach to claim to be what we're talking about when we talk about morality. So again, it looks like there's nothing to be a realist about. You could be a realist about morality in sense A, and then an anti-realist about morality in sense B, etc. But I think that that's something that moral realists would be very much disinclined to, uh, that's a position they'd like to avoid at all costs. If, you know. hmm. So what are, what are the empirical issues that would have to be worked out to uphold moral incoherentism? So I guess I think that, you know, the world is the way the world is, whether we talk about it or not, no matter how we talk about it. That's just a, a truism about metaphysics, mm -hmm. right? We, we can't make something go away by not talking about it or by talking about it in a certain way. But whether any of the things in the world are moral things like rightness or moral properties like rightness or goodness or virtue um, uh, turns out to be importantly connected to questions about semantics. Um, 
morality is whatever we're talking about when we talk moral talk. So there may be something that exists that's not morality. Um, so, for example, some people think that um, some kind of utilitarianism is the correct theory of morality. And I might be willing to accept, I probably wouldn't, but I, I might, for argument's sake, be willing to accept that there's a fact about what would maximize utility um, defined in a certain way. But that um, that only makes me a moral realist if I think that that's what people are talking about when they talk about morality, and I certainly don't. Um, so I think that these empirical questions are questions about what people are doing with their moral words, and that gets pretty complicated, actually, but um, I think it's at least largely empirical. Philosophers tend to um, say, you know, the ordinary person believes this, and by that they, they don't mean anything disparaging, they just mean the non-philosopher. Um, the non-philosopher, or the, sometimes the expression is the man on the Clapham op omnibus, means X when he uses the term morally right. But nobody ever went and interviewed the man on the Clapham op or the woman on the Clapham omnibus, and uh, I don't think we should be speculating so much about what people are doing with their words. I think we should be doing empirical studies of our kind of philosophical anthropology about what people are talking about when they talk moral talk. Um, in my experience with college students, many of them who talk moral talk, at least on the surface, appear to be some kind of irrealist. Hmm. But I'm sure that plenty of people are using their moral words to make factual assertions. And they can't. It, it can't be that morality is both a realm of fact and not a realm of fact at the same time, right? And yet those, it, it doesn't seem like my students who are anti-realists, for example, are misusing the moral vocabulary. Hmm. They're doing different things with their words than the average person is. If that makes yeah, sense. so it seems like part of the problem, as you see it, is that there are so many different ways in which people use moral terms that it's hard to figure out what you could be a realist about, because right? you could be a realist about one type of morality but not another type of morality, and there's a big problem there because there's no definite subject matter of moral words. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Well, so G.E. Moore tried to argue that um, uh, moral properties are not natural properties, by which he meant um, things in the world that's observed and studied by science, including social science. So moral goodness isn't, for example, pleasure. And his argument went something like this. Um, take any natural property term and now um, ask whether something that has that uh, or a natural property, and ask whether something that has that property is um, morally good. It looks like that's an open question, in a way that the question, are bachelors unmarried, is not open. If you understand what a bachelor is, you, that's not a question for you. Um, but if you ask, say, well, I know it produces pleasure, but is it good? That seems like an open question. A standard criticism of Moore's argument, which is called the open question argument, is that uh, He's confusing two questions. It's a bit ironic, actually, because he begins his major work, which is called Principia Ethica, with an admonition against doing just that. He's confusing questions of metaphysics with questions of semantics, because um, it could be that the word goodness and the word uh, or the word phrase uh, conduciveness to producing pleasure uh, mean different things, but they could nevertheless refer to the same thing. After all, the word morning star, the word phrase morning star, refers to the first star you see in the morning, something like that, and refers to a star, certainly. Um, or, sorry, means uh, the first star you see in the morning. 
the word phrase evening star seems to mean star you see in the evening, and yet the morning star and the evening star are the same star, and it's not a star at all, it's Venus. They refer to the same entity. So what the words mean isn't dispositive on the question of what is the case. Um, but now takes, so he tried to pull a metaphysical rabbit, we might say, out of a semantic hat, and he couldn't do that. Now take, by contrast, somebody like A.J. Ayer, and suppose his theory of moral language is correct. According to his theory of moral language, when we talk, when we say, um, you know, it's wrong to kill children for fun, all we're doing is saying, you know, to put it crudely, boo killing children for fun, or maybe don't kill children for fun. If you were right about that, then there wouldn't be some moral property to be a realist about. Um, any more than there's, you know, if I say boo Yankees or yay Red Sox, I'm um, talking about some property that we could be realist about, the property of being, you know, boo-worthy, um, something like that. So if, I don't think Ayer's theory of language is right, but if some theory of language is right according to which there's nothing to be a realist about, then as incoherentism suggests, uh, then there's nothing to be a realist about. You know, moral realism is false. In fact, the question whether there are moral facts turns out to be ill-formed. And that's what I think, um, that's a hypothesis that I think has a lot going for it. I think, in fact, it explains the plausibility, uh, and it helps to explain at least the plausibility of views like Ayers. He had his own reasons for taking that view. Um, I don't think for very good reasons, but it helps to explain the, the staying power of um, that kind of what might sometimes called non-cognitivist or non-descriptivist view of moral language that or at least the facts that you know the 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 facts that explain that um, that appeal or help to explain that appeal may lend some support to moral incoherentism. But I think it's you know largely an empirical question. Are people who are my students who claim to be anti-realists and uh, my religious friends who claim to be moral realists are they talking about the same thing? Um, I suspect not. Uh, one question would be you know I could ask me my religious friends. Well, suppose your religious views were all wrong. Would you still believe um, that there's such a thing as morality and you were just wrong about its nature? And I suspect some of them would say, no, that just wouldn't be morality if it weren't, uh, say, the will of God. And I suspect some of my students would say um, that, you know, the claim that morality is, uh, you know, up to the individual or something like that, um, a realm much more like a realm of taste, is in a way non-negotiable. That if you talked about a morality that was somehow some set of natural properties, goodness is a natural property, say, um, apart from what people uh, uh, like or approve of, you'd have changed the subject. And if that's true, if enough of that's true anyway, then moral words seem to be talking about um, nothing at all. Or alternatively, you might think too much for there to be something coherent that we're all talking about when we talk in moral talk. Thus, it's incoherent if that theory is right, and um, we get a kind of anti-realism that's neither non-cognitivism nor the error theory. Well, wouldn't that approach to moral incoherentism lead us to incoherentism about things like love or art or other terms that are used in a great variety of ways? Would that mean that there's no subject matter of love to state facts about? Good question. I have to accept the possibility that our talk about love is like that. But I suspect that in the case of love, we really would think that 
they're just different kinds of love that we use the word to mean a lot of different things. And so, you know, the kind of love that I feel for my um, parents is different from the kind of love I feel for my siblings and different from the kind of love I feel for my children and, or my wife or humanity as a whole. Um, and it may be that although the term is kind of vague in some ways, it really does refer to a number of closely related properties that we can be realists about. But, you know, that, that claim is, is empirically exposed in that sense that I, it's vulnerable in the same sense that my claim about, or my hypothesis about more language, languages. So I want to grant that possibility. I, I don't think it works out that way. Why aren't philosophers going out and taking polls and all that kind of thing and doing the research in order to resolve these semantic issues, or are they? Well, some are beginning to. Um, incoherentism is a new theory, and I don't expect to, you know, sort of start a cottage industry of philosophical anthropology because I wrote a paper in which I put forward um, this view. Um, I had a student last year who did a survey um, on our campus with um, several hundred participants, and the results, I think, lend some support to the view. There are psychologists like John Darley who have done some studies that I think lend some support to this view. Philosophers are more, in, in general, are there are more philosophers who are interested in empirical research than used to be, but philosophers have tended to do things a priori as best, you know, as much as possible. And so I think a lot of philosophers think they already know. Frank Jackson, more important philosopher than I am, has said, um, you may ask, why don't um, I recommend that we go out and do empirical studies? And the answer is, I do when it's necessary. But it's quite obvious that when people are talking about morality, they're talking about a realm of fact. Think about any your students. And in a paper by Stephen Stitch and Jonathan Weinberg, um, their response is something like, you know, you'd think the guy doesn't have any students because our students tend to be anti-realist. And Jackson's response is just watch what they do, not what they say. Um, or what that means is when you ask them moral questions, they'll start to reason about them. But, of course, we anti-realists think you can do that. Even if morality is not a realm of fact, we think you can reason about what to value. And so... Jackson's response, in my view, is quite inadequate. So, but anyway, it represents this this kind of approach that philosophers have been mired in, if you ask me, for a long time. Namely, you know, if you can't think it up in your head, if you can't figure it out in your own head, or by introspection, or by talking to your philosophical colleagues and speculating about what other people think, then it's not really philosophy anyway. And that's starting to be challenged by people who do what's sometimes called empirical philosophy. That's kind of a misnomer because it really should be something like philosophy. Um, which takes empirical science seriously. Well, one of the important arguments for moral realism is the argument from moral experience. Could you give us a brief sketch of that, and why do you think that it fails? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think that many people on both sides of the debate presuppose, many philosophers on both sides of the debate presuppose that moral realism is in a way the theory to beat that other things equal, we should be moral realists, or that we should presuppose that moral realism is true unless we have darn good evidence to the contrary. Even J.L. Mackey, who's kind of the father of error theory of morality, takes that position that, you know, since it's an error theory, it's got an uphill climb. I don't think that, I mean, I think I coined the phrase the argument for moral experience, I think, and yet I actually think that the presupposition is typically not argued for, that typically just made. I tried to reconstruct or construct an argument for it as best I could, 
And that's what I call the argument for moral experience. And it, it basically has two premises. Premise number one is something like this. We experience morality as if it's a realm of fact. Premise number two is that's evidence that it is a realm of fact or that should, that's reason to treat it as a moral, as a realm of fact unless we have darn good evidence to the contrary. Well, what's the evidence that we experience morality as a realm of fact? At least we insofar as we're not philosophers. Well, we wonder what morality requires. We don't wonder what our next attitude's going to be. Um, so much. We wonder, we think we might be wrong about moral questions. We think other people are. We disagree with them. These are all respects in which it looks like we're treating it as a realm of fact in sort of our everyday experience. And then the thought has got to be something like, well, that's reason to think it is a realm of fact, either evidence for it being a realm of fact or um, reason to presuppose that. And I guess I think that unless you think that experience, our experience is a, you know, pretty straightforwardly reliable guide to the truth, we ought to look for an, an argument that connects up. I don't actually think that our experience of morality is experience of a realm of fact. I think it's much more complicated than that, and that's in a way what I'm getting at with the moral incoherentism claim. But I also think that even if it were a realm, uh, even if it were the case we experience morality as a realm of fact, that we need some kind of argument from there. I don't think that ordinary people's experience of anything is good evidence for it being the, the experience being veridical, um, unless we've got some reason to think so. Um, so I guess I, what I would want to say is, why think that our experience of morality being the experience as if of something objective is evidence for morality being a realm of objective fact? And I can think of some arguments that they might give, and in the paper I canvass four of them, and I try to show that none of them is adequate. Yeah, I've never understood why moral realists think that the burden of proof is on the anti-realist, since the moral realist is the one who's asserting the, the positive existence of something. Don't they have the case to prove? In the paper, what I say is, you know, less charitable philosopher might say, you guys are the one making the existence claim. Um, you should be defending that claim. I mean, you're, you've got the burden of proof. You're the ones who mm -hmm. think something exists. Um, otherwise, Occam's razor or simplicity or something like that should cause us, I don't think you should believe in stuff unless you've got evidence for it. Give us the evidence. But in the paper, what I say is, at a minimum, we should be on a level playing field as a starting point, because I don't see why there's anything that suggests that the burden of proof is on my side any more than your side. I mean, I think the when it comes to, say, moral disagreement, the realist has got a lot of explaining to do. But I also think that when it comes to moral agreement, the anti-realist has a lot of explaining to do. So... I'm willing to be charitable in a way to leave that little suggestion that maybe I'm being too charitable in the background and be charitable enough to say, we're on a level playing field here, so let's see whether the arguments tip us in one direction or the other. And I think the arguments, there's some arguments that favor realism to some degree and some that favor anti-realism to some degree. And sometimes the same, you know, variations on the same argument can push us in both directions. But in my judgment, um, the anti-realist side has the better of it. Well, you mentioned moral agreement and disagreement, and of course that's a very popular skeptical argument about morality, the, the argument from moral disagreement. How does that argument go, and do you think it succeeds? I, I know this is going to be disappointingly fair-minded, but I think that the argument is a powerful one and needs to be taken seriously, but that in that case as well, um, there is some philosophical anthropology that needs to be done before we're in a position to know whether it sinks realism or, in fact, supports realism. Why do I say that? 
Well, what's the argument? There are a lot of there are a lot of different versions of it, and if you read the book on moral realism, like Russ Schaefer Landau's book, Moral Realism: A Defense, you'll find versions of it that are just utterly alien to the versions that I find plausible. You know, put forward as you know what the anti-realist is saying. Um, I'm writing about that now. I just don't think that any anti-realist ought to say it that way. What I would say is something like this: um, Look, what's our evidence for there being for morality being a realm of fact? Well. Something like, it appears that we know a bunch of those facts, right? We seem to have some kind of epistemic access to those facts or some way of knowing them or recognizing them. Um, but do we? Well, um, let me give you an analogy. If I claim that we have um, some ability to know the truth about what the rank and suit of an overturned playing card is, we could do a test to see whether we really do have that ability or faculty, if you like. Um, we could, for example, put a turn a playing card over and bring 10 people into the room and see how many of them can pick, you know, the, rank, the correct rank and suit or bring 100 people into the room and do it. If the 100 people all give, you know, um, a variety of answers and those answers are distributed pretty randomly or if, um, you know, they get the answer right roughly in proportion as random chance would suggest, um, and if that's repeatable, then we start to think, well, we don't have any ability to tell, you know, we don't have that particular kind of ESP, and so we shouldn't believe that um, we can know the rank and suit of an overturned playing card um, in any kind of reliable way. But we know that overturned playing cards do have a rank and suit. Now suppose that instead somebody claims that um, we have a different kind of ability. It's the ability to, to detect people's auras as distinguished by color. And we do a similar test. We bring a thousand people in and we ask them, you know, what is Don's, what color is Don's aura? And they give a variety of answers um, which don't agree with one another. Um, some people say it's blue. Some people say it's red. Some people say it's green. Some people say it's yellow, etc. Um, at some point, we have reason not just to believe that we can't tell the color of a person's aura um, very well, but we have reason to believe there's no such thing as an auras, because the only evidence we have for them is that we seem to see them, or that some people claim to be able to see them. That evidence is undermined by disagreement. Well, if there's moral disagreement, it seems to undermine the um, claim that we have the ability to detect, somehow to figure out the moral truth to come to understand it, to figure it out, to detect it, to have epistemic access to it, to know it. Um, but if our best evidence for there being moral facts is that we seem to know a bunch of them, and we have evidence that we don't really know, we're not really very good at telling what the moral facts are, then we should believe not just that we, uh, not just that we can't tell what the moral facts are, but that we have no reason to believe they exist at all. Now, is that the way things are? Well, there's a lot of moral disagreement, but realists have ways of trying to explain it away. Um, they say that some of the disagreement stems from disagreement about non-moral facts. So that, for example, you know, it's natural to expect a disagreement between me and somebody who believes that human sacrifice is morally required. I would believe it's morally required, too, if I thought that our crops wouldn't grow and we'd all starve to death if we didn't sacrifice a few, few virgins, assuming we could find them. Um, you know, every once in a while. And I would believe that it's uh, morally required that we burn witches at the stake if I believe that there were witches and that by burning them at the stake, we were purifying them in such a way that 
although we were causing them five minutes of, you know, excruciating pain here on Earth now, we're preventing an eternity of even unthinkably excruciating pain in the next life by doing so. I would think it was, you know, I'm doing them a favor. And I'd go for it with um, great enthusiasm. So, But I don't believe that there are witches or that burning people saves them from pain. I think it just causes them unnecessary pain. So maybe moral disagreement would go away if we agreed on the non-moral facts. Um, well, very few people think it all would, but there are other they have other tricks up their sleeve. And I think it's, you know, we need to look at the moral disagreement that's out there and see whether it really can be explained away in the various ways that um, moral realists suggest that it can. And not just, again, philosophers have this vice of saying, you know, here are a couple of stock cases, and, you know, the rest of it is like that. I mean, if you could see me now, if we were doing a video cast instead of a <laughs> podcast, I'd be waving my hand in the air yes. saying, you know, the rest of it is like that. Um, don't bother me with empirical stuff. I'm a philosopher. I'm entitled to speculate. And I think we just shouldn't speculate. We should. Um, so, for example, Richard Boyd, who's a you know really important philosopher who's done a lot of great stuff, says in a paper called How to Be a Moral Realist that he thinks that most moral disagreement is the product of non-moral factual mm -hmm. disagreement. And I want to know how he knows that. And I think <laughs> the answer is, well, he's pretty good at waving his hand there. On the other hand, I think that there's a lot of moral agreement out there, and that calls for explanation, too. And I can't just wave my hand by saying, oh, you know, um, evolution made us kind of similar, and there are certain things that it's natural that we would evolve to uh, treat as moral truths. It's natural that we would evolve to think that they are moral truths and not just, you know, practical advice about how not to kill each other, um, which, as creatures who evolved, we came to accept because the ones who didn't didn't evolve. And that's a nice story, and it might be right. I think the best philosophers who defend that point of view don't do so merely by hand waving, but by you know considering the evolutionary evidence very carefully. Um, and I think more of that has to be done. So right now, I'm not sure, right, that the argument from disagreement or the argument from dis from agreement is dispositive. But I think that the um, that the anti-realists have done a lot or the realists have done a lot to, like Richard Joyce and um, others, have done a lot to try to show that um, the evolutionary story is actually quite plausible and fits better with anti-realism than with realism. And I think the moral realists have a lot of explaining to, to do on the side of um, the moral disagreement that's out there. But I don't want to prejudge whether they can or not because I think to some degree these are empirical or philosophical slash empirical issues. Mm -hmm. Now, as you formulated that the argument from disagreement against moral realism, in order for it to be an argument against moral realism, you have to say that our intuitions about morality or our claims to have a faculty to directly detect moral facts are the only ways that we could know moral facts. So what would you say to the moral realist? Well, I don't want to say quite that. Okay. I, I don't want to say quite that because I don't think that it depends on direct access in the form that something like intuition. So I tried I tried to either avoid the use of the word faculty when I formulated that just now or to include it on a list of other methods of epistemic access. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe the best way to get moral knowledge is by trying to get into reflective equilibrium using the techniques of moral realism that the method presupposes. 
or maybe you know there are other means of discovering the moral truth by complex you know reasoning or some other approach and i don't want to i don't want to restrict my arguments to arguments that would work against intuitionist varieties of moral realism which um especially crude intuitionisms according to which you know we just figure out we we don't figure out what morality requires we just have some kind of direct access to it by a perception like faculty although there are intuitionists you know 10 years ago 15 years ago intuitionism was a was thought to be a laughable view a kind of curiosity from the early part of the last century um or from the 20 of the 20th century um now there are plenty of intuitionists out there again and so i don't think it's such a caricature of moral realism to to talk about intuitionist mm-hmm. versions of it but certainly there are non-intuitionist versions and i think the argument has force against them as well it may need a little tweaking in order to push it in those directions but i think that that tweaking can be done and you know without much trouble really well where i was going with that was is it still possible to deploy the argument from disagreement against moral realists who would say that moral terms reduce to non-moral or moral facts reduced to non-moral facts and the way we know them is exactly the same way that we know other non-moral facts uh through methods of reason and evidence and so the, the this type of moral realist might say well yeah there's lots of say religious disagreement um or something like that but that doesn't mean that there's no fact about the matter the way we know the facts about certain religious claims is by just looking at the evidence and and the fact that there's tons of disagreement just means that a lot of people don't know the evidence or aren't willing to look at it so couldn't there still be or we haven't finished doing the science or something like that um i mean it might, it might be that not just unwillingness or 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 um you know ignorance it could be that you know we're just beginning to figure this stuff out mm-hmm. yeah like facts about you know sub uh, string theory or something like that yeah so um i think actually you could add to that um naturalist moral realists who don't think that it re- moral facts reduce to natural facts um or other natural facts but that nevertheless the moral facts are natural facts or supervene on natural facts in some non-reducing way that um that that's a a naturalist view that could make the same kind of argument that the epistemology of moral reasoning is a sort of coherentist explanatory uh methodology something like that which would be which would inform scientific inquiry and so we can expect moral real uh reasoning to look something like that and the way to figure out moral truth what the moral truth is is to engage in that enterprise but if it turns out that that enterprise um produces a lot of moral disagreement even among people who are thinking very clearly and carefully and considering the evidence that disagreement doesn't show any signs of abating then we have some evidence against moral realism so here's an example suppose that i believe that if we were to reason in a kind of empirical slash explanatory way about morality um we should be able to figure out the moral truth but then we consider that there are debates about what the moral facts are there are normative debates between kantians and the uh, kantian deontologists and utilitarians and these debates don't look like they're going anywhere it's not plausible to say that the utilitarian moral philosophers just don't know the non-moral facts the way the kantians do or have a completely different view of the non-moral facts than the kantians do or are just really um mired in their own biases um in the way that the kantians aren't or vice versa it looks like um 
a, there's there's some evidence that that debate is just intractable. And if you ask me, when I look at the literature, you know, 30 years ago, there was a lot of debate between these groups. You'd get Kantians trying to catch the utilitarian with making implausible claims. So they'd argue, you know, that the utilitarian has to say that it's okay to break a promise to a dying man on a desert island as long as nobody will find out about it and good things will result from your doing so. And that's, it's implausible that that, that should be the case. And then you get utilitarians arguing that you really should break the promise or that if you shouldn't, it's just perfectly plausible that you shouldn't. But there's not so much of that anymore. What there is now is utilitarians arguing among themselves and Kantians arguing among themselves. And there's there's less debate among professional philosophers, in my view, um, I could be wrong about this, I guess, than there was, you know, over this issue than there was 30 years ago. But the time, the sort of explainers um, that are pointed to by moral realists who find the argument from disagreement unpersuasive don't seem to be present here, right? It doesn't look like you know, we're applying the same moral norms to different cases, as in the stock example of the Eskimo or Inuit group that puts old people out on icebergs to die, where we would say something, you know, the standard argument is, well, we'd do that too if we all were going to die unless some of us who could no longer gather food um, died, and everybody understands that, and the old people would go out on the icebergs quite willingly because they know that they can't be productive anymore and that everybody will die if we try to feed everybody. So it's a perfectly sensible thing to do, um, even according to, according to moral principles we all share. You know, it doesn't look like that's what's, that utilitarianism just is the moral truth applied to some cases and some kind of Kantian deontology is the moral truth applied to other kinds of cases. It doesn't look like utilitarians and Kantians have different um, non-moral factual beliefs or, like I say, biases, or that any of the other sort of standard explainers applies there. So their reasoning by these very sophisticated kind of method of reflective equilibrium, explanatory coherence, scientific, if you like, approach, uh, and don't seem to be getting very far, as far as I can tell. And I want to, if, I, if it's okay, I want to go back to one thing you said a moment ago about this because I think that we've got to be careful about where we draw the parallel. Um, we talk about the disagreements among religious people. We think there is an answer there. Um, and I think there are answers to questions of meta-ethics. I think there's an answer to the question of whether there are moral facts or not. Right? The question is whether the answer in, involves there being um, uh, a god in the theological context. Right, a particular God conceived in a particular way. Um, so, a God who's a Trinity versus a God who's not a Trinity. Um, there's certainly everybody believes that there's an answer to the question of whether there are, there is a God so con you know conceived in one of those ways. Well, people disagree about whether there is such a God, and they disagree about what the nature of such a of God is if there is a God. In the moral case, I think we ought to agree, or it's reasonable to agree, that there's a fact about whether there are moral facts or not, that doesn't mean that there's a fact about what the moral facts are. The anti-realist says there's not. It takes disagreement about what the moral facts are as evidence that we don't have any kind of epistemic access, whether through reasoning or through intuition. So it takes that as evidence that we don't have any kind of access of that sort, and thus that we don't have reason to believe in moral facts in the first place. Yeah, I think the, the parallel to, say, string theory uh, would have been better in that 
there's a lot of disagreement there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that string theory is false. It just means that uh, the evidence isn't in yet or something like that. That's right. And some realists want to say that, in fairness to their position. They want to say that um, ethics is very young. You know, we've only been doing it really seriously in a non-religious framework for 30 years or so, you know, since now it's maybe more like 40 years or so. There was a time when moral realism was, right now it's, you know, I think it's the by a wide margin the most um, commonly held view among philosophers. That is, uh, at least moral philosophers tend to be moral realists, and people like me and Richard Joyce are in the very small minority. But there was a time when it wasn't like that, and non-cognitivist views of ethics were on the ascendancy, it sort of coincided with the rise of logical positivism, and its demise sort of came along with the demise of logical positivism. But when that was going on, people weren't doing normative theory uh, so much, the claim goes. And so we really haven't been doing this for very long. But what they forget is that there was a time before positivism when almost everybody was some kind of a realist. And um, people like Sidgwick are certainly doing normative theory in a very big way. And also that religious um, reasoning about ethics is not all that discontinuous from um, non-religious reasoning about ethics. I mean, there are some places where it's not continuous, but, for example, I don't think that Adam blaming his own misconduct on Eve and her going on to blame it on the serpent in Genesis, I don't think you need to be religious to see what would be wrong with with that kind of pushing the blame off onto somebody else. I think the people who thought that that was wrong you know, if there had been an Adam he, and he had behaved that way, he would have been doing something wrong in trying to pass the blame off onto Eve. You know, I don't think those people were thinking very differently about morality than the moral realists who reasons about it in philosophy and public affairs today. So I'm just, I'm just not convinced that ethics is so new. Um, I think we've been at this for a long time, and we haven't made the kind of strides we've made in science. And if we haven't made those strides in string theory, we certainly have in other areas, of, or, or in whether string theory is right or not, we certainly made them in other areas of science by following the scientific method. And that should give us some hope that we may be able to press on and make more progress. But I don't think we have in ethics quite as much. And, you know, people want to say, well, look, um, we don't believe in slavery anymore, but certainly some people do. And some people believe all sorts of abominable, you know, moral theories. When I say that I'm expressing my attitudes, not making moral claim, factual moral claims, mm-hmm. I should warn you. Right? There are all sorts of things that people think of as atrocities that are widely accepted as the moral truth in all sorts of um, contexts. So um, I think it's a little bit uh, Panglossian to, or Pollyanna-ish to um, think that you know we're making lots of moral progress and the problem is we just haven't had much time. Give us time and it'll come. It's a little bit like saying, you know, I don't need to do empirical studies of uh, people's more people people's moral language or their moral beliefs because I already know about that. I already know that in the future we'll have figured out all this moral, this normative stuff and, you know, then we'll know the truth. Um, it's coming, it's coming, you know, don't worry about that. I want to see the proof in the pudding and I, uh, when I look at the situation, I, what I see is uh, quite a lot of turmoil and a lot of questions that look pretty intractable. Maybe they're not, but right now, you know, in a hundred years, I might have to say the argument for disagreement isn't so powerful. But right now, um, it looks like, and that's why I say it's not conclusive, it's not dispositive at this stage, but right now it looks like it's pretty um, 
it certainly presents a serious challenge to moral realism. Well, another skeptical argument is the claim that moral facts can't serve as the best explanation for moral beliefs, uh, because our moral beliefs can be explained without positing the existence yeah. of new exotic facts like moral facts. Uh, what do you think of that argument? So this is an argument that was put forward sort of first and best in a way by um, in a little book that was meant for undergraduates by um, Gilbert Harmon. So I think of it as an argument for moral explanation, and it was an argument against moral realism, and it went something like, you know, this, we shouldn't believe in stuff that we don't need to believe in um, in order to explain the observed world. And for two reasons we shouldn't believe, of that sort, we shouldn't believe in moral facts. Um, people think of this as one argument, but I really think it's two or three arguments. So one kind of argument version of it is um, we just can do without them in explaining, and if we can do without them, we should. A second version is they couldn't explain anyway, even if they existed, because how could moral facts somehow explain our moral beliefs? How would something's being morally right um, cause us to have the belief that it's morally right? And those are the two sort of standard versions in the Harmon argument, and people like Nick Sturgeon and Peter Railton and others have tried to, and David Brink have tried to argue that moral facts could explain mm -hmm. if there were moral facts. They could explain. Um, it makes sense to think that um, just like facts about unemployment don't have to enter into any kind of direct causal uh, contact with our brains in the way that um, a two-by-four could, you know, yes. make causal contact with my brain and cause me to have different thoughts than I do now or no thoughts at all. Moral facts could cause us, could somehow explain our, our beliefs about them, um, just as facts about unemployment explain our beliefs about them or about love, say. Um, likewise, they want to say that parsim the parsimony argument is not so good because it proves too much in a way, or at least I, this is the way I would put it on their behalf, trying to be fair-minded, because if you if you want to say that we shouldn't believe in stuff we could, ex we could perfectly well explain by sort of more basic facts, then we shouldn't believe in belief, because beliefs are prob probably supervene on brain states, and might as well just believe in the brain states and give up on the claim that there are beliefs or states of mind at all. But beliefs just are brain states um, in some sense. And so we're not adding anything to our ontology when we add beliefs into the mix. It's not like the room is getting more crowded or the universe is getting more crowded. Um, a simpler example might be, you know, there used to be this kind of worry about whether we should think about things, exist, things like tables existing or really just events involving the behavior of electrons and stuff like that existing. But that's a false choice. We, should, we can believe in tables, which are um, events involving, involving um, electrons and stuff like that. Um, the table supervenes on this collection of molecules or atoms or electrons, if you like. Um, it's nothing, you know, as it were, over and above them. And the universe doesn't get any more crowded when we allow for... Uh, there to be facts at both levels. Table talk is convenient in some contexts, and electron talk is, mm -hmm. or molecule talk is convenient in other contexts. But there really is just one, this one thing: the table, which is, which is uh, constituted by, let's just say, molecule, a bunch of molecules. Um, even if the molecules, you know, come and go, that's perfectly, you know, we can give a coherent story about all of that. 
Um, just like we can say, even if we nick the table, it's still the same table. Um, so I think the parsimony argument, the parsimony strand of the argument doesn't work either. But I think that Harmon was onto something, um, which is that we shouldn't believe in stuff that uh, somehow doesn't, in fact, figure into our best explanatory picture or best explanatory understanding of the world. And the moral real still does need to show us that moral facts not just could explain and not just are, um, but that they do explain, that they do figure in the best explanatory picture of the world. So, you know, Sturgeon's famous paper, Moral Explanations, he really tries to claim that, um, he, he really goes after this kind of causal strand in Harmon's argument. He says, you know, to prove that moral facts could explain, I have to assume, for, for the moment at least, for argument's sake, that they exist and say, if they exist, could they explain? And then he tries to show ways in which they, it seems like they could explain things like Hitler's behavior, but also our beliefs about Hitler's behavior. And I want to take him at his word and say, yeah, okay, you've shown, or with a little help, you will have shown that moral facts, if they existed, could explain. But I still want to know whether they exist or not. And you haven't shown that. Likewise, you can show that um, we shouldn't reject moral facts just because um, a kind of crude parsimony requires us to. But we still need some evidence for their existence. And, that, and fine, that should be explanatory evidence. But I want to see the explanatory arguments that show that the moral facts do exist and not just um, not just take it for granted that if they could, they do, or something like that. What I worry about is that we've got this presupposition from the previous argument for moral experience that there are moral facts, and unless we have reason to doubt that they exist, like they couldn't explain if they did, or they, our parsimony requires that we reject them even if they could explain, um, might as well believe in them. What I want to say is, since we start on an even playing field, um, if um, we, we have to show that they figure in our best explanatory understanding of the observed world. And yeah. showing that they could um, is not the same thing as showing that they do. Right? So I suspect that these arguments from explanation in a, kind of, in a sort of subtle way presuppose that the uh, that moral realism is correct unless there's good reason to reject it, and that since the parsimony strand and the causal strand of the argument from explanation don't work, uh, we don't have a defeater for the moral realism that we're entitled to presuppose, and I don't think we're entitled to presuppose it, and I don't think that the absence of a defeater is a reason to accept an existence claim like the claim that there are moral facts. Right, and I'm trying to remember Sturgeon's paper. How did he write about moral facts being the explanation for uh, Hitler's behavior or our beliefs about Hitler's behavior? We'll take Hitler's behavior first. And um, I mean, uh, there's a simple version of the answer and there's a complicated version of the answer. The complicated version of the answer gets pretty technical, although I'm happy to talk about it if you like. The simple version goes like this. Uh, well, why do you think Hitler did what he did? Um, he did it because he was a bad guy. If he hadn't right. been a bad guy, he wouldn't have done it. Um, the complicated version, if you like, uh, or simplified version of it is something like this. Well, what is this badness consistent? Necessarily consistent is being, I'm going to give you a, part, a partial version of it, um, an anti-Semitic killer, right? Um, a brutal anti-Semitic killer. There are lots of ways in which you can be bad, but his way of being bad was to be an anti-Semitic brutal killer. So if he hadn't been bad... Well, then he couldn't have been an anti-Semitic brutal killer because anti-Semitic brutal killers are necessarily bad. If he hadn't been bad, he couldn't have been an, a brutal anti-Semitic killer, and so he wouldn't have done what he did. 
And you might be thinking that he could have not been bad, but still been a brutal anti-Semitic killer because um, the theory that being an anti-Semitic brutal killer makes you bad is wrong. Anti-realist, he says, but gosh, if, if you're going to do that, you might as well be a global skeptic and global skepticism. You don't want to wind up with an argument for anti-realism that goes something like this, you know, that has this implication. There's no more re reason to believe in moral facts than there is to believe in tables and chairs. Take the ta or from the table again. I think the table just uh, is constituted by the molecules that make it up. So if it hadn't been that uh, table, it couldn't have been that collection of molecules. And you might think, well, no, it could have been the, that table, and nevertheless, it could have not been the table, but still been that collection of molecules. Well, how could that be? I mean, or still have, for all observational evidence, been that collection of molecules. Um, as far as everything we know from observation, been that collection of molecules. Well, you know, you can be a global skeptic. You can say everything would appear the same uh, to our observational capacities, even if there were no external world, right? Um, it would still seem to me that I see the table in front of me, even if there were no table in front of me. And so it's not true that if there hadn't been a table, it wouldn't have appeared to me that there was a table. If there hadn't been a table, um, it might have appeared to me that there's a table because I'm just a brain in some mad scientist vat, mm -hmm. or because I'm dreaming that there's a table or something like that. But then your argument proves a kind of global skepticism, and you're stuck with a position that there's no more re reason to believe in moral properties than there is to believe in tables and chairs. And that's not a very interesting form of moral anti-realism, because it flow, it's an anti-realism that flows from a more general uh, skeptical or perhaps anti-realist position. What I think about that argument is that he's left out a possibility, which is that it's not that our moral theory is radically wrong, and you could be a, a guy like Hitler, who's a brutal anti-Semitic killer, but not be a bad guy, right? It's, it's not that, or that you could not be a bad guy and be a brutal anti-Semitic killer, um, because our moral theory is so wrong that you could be a nice guy and be a brutal anti-Semitic killer. I think what the, the comparison should be to the view according to which um, there are no moral facts. So if you're a brutal anti-Semitic right. killer, you're not a bad guy, but you're not a good guy either. You're not, you're not an okay guy. You're not a good guy. You're not a bad guy. And so it's much more, to me, it's much less plausible to imagine that there are moral facts, but one of them isn't that a guy like Hitler was a bad guy than to say that there are no moral facts at all. He was neither bad nor good. You know, we did things that we find abhorrent and we, or that we abhor and that we, um, you know, are interested in stopping and, you know, it's the last kind of thing we'd ever want to be or, or tolerate. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say that our moral theory is radically screwed up and there's some correct moral theory according to which Hitler wasn't a bad guy. So I think the, the, um, the alternative to the moral explanation that Sturgeon wants to propose is not, in fact, a the best alternative for the anti-realist to embrace. The best alternative is one according to which not that the moral theory is wrong, but some other moral theory is right, but no moral theory is right. And so although it seems weird to say Hitler wasn't a bad guy, remember, we anti-realists think he wasn't a good guy either, or, or even an okay guy. Um, he was a brutal anti-Semitic killer, and you know we despise that. And, you know, I'm proud of my dad going off to 
fight against that, you know, volunteering to go off and fight against that because I abhor that kind of attitude. Yeah, but it doesn't necess- it doesn't necessarily mean that there's moral facts about the matter. It, I, I don't think that, I don't think there have to be because we can explain. Uh, remember how the argument got started. The best explanation for Hitler's having done what he did is he was a bad guy, and that his badness consisted in his being a brutal anti-Semitic killer. The test for whether it explains is well, if he hadn't been a bad guy, he wouldn't have done the stuff he did. Because if he hadn't been a bad guy, then according to Sturgeon's moral theory, you know, which is plausible if any moral theory is, um, if he hadn't been a bad guy, then he couldn't have been a brutal anti-Semitic killer. But I, um, you think a good guy could have been a brutal anti-Semitic killer, right? I want to say no. I think somebody like Hitler could be, um, but he's neither good nor bad because moral realism is false. So I think we can explain his having done what he did without hypothesizing that he was bad. If he hadn't been bad, he would have done what he did because nobody's bad, but he would have still been a brutal anti-Semitic killer, right? So I think we can explain it just as well without hypothesizing the moral facts. And so I don't think we have a positive argument for moral realism here. So, Don, I would like to know, what would it take to convert you to moral realism? Like, what would a moral theory have to look like in order to demonstrate moral realism? Oh, your sub-question confused me there because... When you first asked what it would take, I was going to say half a million probably would do it. <laughs> right. Uh, but you're looking for evidence that would convince me. Yeah. Well, it would be evidence, first of all, that we're, that people who are talking moral talk really are talking about the same thing. So that if they stopped making, I mean, look, Aristotle talked about water even though he thought it couldn't be a solid. And I talk about water thinking it can be. So we can have different beliefs about something but still be talking about the same thing uh-huh. and likewise it could be that a religious person who talks about morality thinks it's the will it's identical to the will of god or it's just whatever god commands because god commands it but maybe that person would be convinced you know would read about the arguments against that view and um say well i guess i was wrong about morality but i'm still talking about morality so you know evidence like that that you know philosophical slash empirical evidence that we're all talking about the same thing when we talk moral talk or that a significant enough number of us are that it's reasonable to say that there's a single um, subject matter or even a, a small number of uh, you know closely related subject matters like in the case of love. Um, that would be one of the things I'd want to believe, but I'd also want to believe that the best explanation of moral agreement is that there are moral facts uh, or requires the hypothesis that there are moral facts, and I'd want to believe that the best explanation of moral disagreement does not require us to presuppose that there aren't moral facts. And I want to see how moral facts, I mean, this is part of the, when I just said in a way, um, more generally figure in our best explanatory understanding of the world. If you gave me all that, then I'd probably be a moral realist. I don't think it's an open, open and shut case. And I think too many philosophers think that, you know, philosophical questions are open and shut cases. I think we should recognize that there's evidence on both sides, as I know you do. Um, and that we're playing the odds here as best we can. Well, switching gears just a bit, uh, several atheist moral philosophers have said, have actually agreed with theists that God is a necessary component of morality. Do you think that if we added God to the universe, that then we could be moral realists? I actually think that that wouldn't help. Um, and I, I'm not the inventor of these of the arguments I can give to support that conclusion but um, I can articulate some of them. 
look, uh, some people want to say there's this puzzle about what morality could be. How could there be a morality be a realm of a, a realm of fact, right? What were these facts consistent? Where do they come from? And you know, one sort of straightforward answer you might try to give is that they are just facts about what God wants us to do, and that God willing that we behave a certain way makes that behavior morally required of us. So, and God allowing us to behave a certain way or willing that we be um, behave as we wish within a certain realm makes it morally permissible to behave that way. And God forbidding that we behave some way because God wants us not to is what it, what it is for it to be the case that, that we ought uh, not behave that way. So on this view, God is the author of morality. Um, there wouldn't be a morality if there weren't God because God is the one who gets to make it up in a way. God created the universe, creates morality too. Um, this view has extremely implausible implications, if you ask me, um, that I think theists should be very careful about accepting. I mean, I think you can actually be a theist and think God and morality are pretty closely connected without um, accepting this view that God somehow solves the problem of where morality came from. Because um, if this view is true, then, for one thing, if any, anything that morality, anything that God wills becomes morally required. So if God wills that we torture our infant children for fun, it becomes morally required of us that we torture our infant children for fun. And you better not say that God wouldn't do that because God is good, because that presupposes a standard of morality that's apart from God. So the argument goes something like this. If this kind of view, which I would call a uh, theological voluntarist view, according to which God's the author of morality, if it were true, then it could be morally required of us to torture our infant children for fun. But it couldn't be morally required of us to torture our infant children for fun. That's just absurd. And so voluntarism is false. And furthermore, people have argued that um, God's commands can't be based in reasons if uh, there was no reason to pick one over the other. I actually think that argument goes a little too far because, you know, God might pick love your neighbor because God loves us, and love your neighbor is more conducive to our flourishing than hate your neighbor. But that just pushes the question back because then God's love for us looks like there was no reason to pick one over the other. I actually think that argument goes a little too far because, you know, God might pick love your neighbor because God loves us and love your neighbor is more conducive to our flourishing than hate your neighbor. But that just pushes the question back because then God's love for us looks arbitrary. And one wants to know why um, it looks like there's no reason if God starts hating us tomorrow, there's no reason not to. And so it looks like God's love for us is arbitrary. And that still seems very worrisome. And finally, I guess, um, well, further, I guess, uh, people want to say that God is good, but if the voluntarist says that God is good, the voluntarist isn't really saying much about God. If the anti-voluntarist says it, then the anti-voluntarist is, you know, the non-theological voluntarist, the, theolo the person who believes in God but doesn't believe that um, God is the author of morality, says that God is good, then that person is saying that there's this standard according to which God, against which God can be measured. So there's this thing called morality, and it involves stuff like being kind and generous and forgiving and loving and all that stuff, and God's got all that stuff. Cool. You know, God's good. But when the, volunteer, the volunteers would have to say God, God is good if God were like Hitler or the devil, that would be just, a, just as good a God on the volunteers' view, and that's a pretty unpalatable 
conclusion for the even a theist to accept. Finally, um, if this is what a morality amounts to, then morality is not the big deal we used to think it is because I could put a list of rules on my door, Don's rules for, you know, living, and they could say stuff like every morning you should say Don's name three times, and if you're ever in the room with Don, you should never turn your back on him when you walk out, and you should never wear a hat in Don's presence, and you should always leave a dollar in the fishbowl when you come into his office. And by the way, follow all these rules. Um, rule number five, follow all these rules, or whatever it is. Um, we say, you know, it's really true that that's Don's list of rules. So, um, and if you don't follow it, you'll be undonish. And you're entitled to respond, who, who, who gives a darn what about donishness, about following, you know, Don's rules? Well, now you make Don, you know, take it, suppose not Don, but somebody a lot more powerful and a lot, you know, uh, you know, more wondrous in lots and lots of ways. And that being has got a bunch of rules for us to follow. It's still just that being's rules. And that being tells me to take my son, my only begotten son, Isaac, I really do have a son named Isaac, and for reasons not unconnected with that story, um, you know, up on a mountain and kill him, my response will be, if I have the courage I hope I'd have, um, no way. Um, I thought you were, you know, on our team. Uh, I don't see that as something... That, that just doesn't accord with values that I take very seriously, and I'm not going to do it. If I, at least, if I have the courage, I, I, I hope I wouldn't do it. Um, and if you tell me that that's what I morally should do, I'll say, okay, but you know, call Don's rules morality, and I morally ought not, because rule, you know, the next, rule number 19 is don't kill your kid. Um, why be moral over moral? Certainly not because I have some moral reason to. I have moral reasons to be moral. That was rule number five. Right, so if if you're a volunteerist, it looks like morality is just not what it's cracked up to be, and that's pretty implausible too. So for all those reasons, I think even if there is a God, it's not plausible that morality is God's invention. Maybe you know, if there were a God, I don't think there is. But if there were a God and there were such a thing as morality, two things I don't believe in. You you could still say God's really really good and wants us to behave morally and punishes us if we're not, but. That's different from saying God invented morality and there would be no morality if there weren't a God. I think people are inclined to reject this because they think they think it makes an, um, an incursion into God's omnipotence. You mean God can't change morality? I thought God could do everything. But there are reasons to think that even an omnipotent God can't, couldn't do some things. You see a lot of parallels between the arguments given for moral realism and the arguments given for theological realism. But actually, to illustrate that, you actually compared the arguments for moral realism to arguments for gastronomic realism. And I wonder if you might share some of those parallels. Well, so there are, um, first of all, it's gastronomic realism. It's the claim that there are, the hypothesis that there are gastronomic value properties. So what are those? Well, I can tell you what they are in part by telling you what they're not. Right. Um, I mean, surely there are facts about what tastes good to you, whether you prefer chocolate to vanilla or neither uh, to one another. You know, you like them both equally. And certainly there are facts about what, you know, most people like. I suspect most people prefer chocolate ice cream to vanilla, but, you know, not by a real big margin. But I could be wrong about that. Um, and certainly there are facts about what's cheaper, you know, to make or what's more healthful uh, to eat or facts about what's, um, you know, 
perhaps less likely to do environmental damage or to cause suffering to animals or something like that. But value properties aren't like that. They're properties like being chocolate being better, not just better tasting, better than vanilla, right? Um, Szechuan food, to take a more plausible example, being better than McDonald's, right? Um, and I think a lot of people are inclined to think that even if more morality is real, gastronomic value realism is is extremely implausible that, that you know one flavor of ice cream could be better than another or that you know so suppose somebody makes sand flavored ice cream and nobody but me likes it um i think most of us would be inclined to say that i'm not making a mistake here in not liking it i'm not you know or in failing to believe that it's not worse in some objective sense than uh you know chocolate flavored ice cream so, you know, I mean, I don't like chunky monkey banana flavored ice cream, um, and I know people who do, and I'm inclined to sort of look down upon them, but, you know, only in a kind of joking way, because I don't really think they're making a mistake, I just think they're different than I am. I don't like bell peppers, you know, I don't like beets. I don't think I'm making a mistake, you know. If I come over to your house and you serve me bell peppers and beets in a casserole, and I don't like them, you can say... Well, surely you know that you don't like what's really good. <laughs> you know, my response should be, I don't even think it's really good. I mean, I think you like it and I don't. Um, well, if the arguments, the, the worry would be that if the arguments for moral realism are equally well deployed to defend gastronomic value realism or gastronomic realism, as I call it, then um, we should be worried about those arguments. Mm-hmm. But we experience the taste of food as if we experience food as if some of it's better than others. You know, it's, we say things like, I don't think that is so good, you know, and we we wonder whether this food will be good, right? Um, so if we can deploy the argument for moral experience, then we might want to say that there really are gastronomic value properties, or at least that that's the theory to beat. And likewise, um, moral uh, gastronomic value properties seem to explain stuff. Well, why do you think people buy, why do you think Ben & Jerry's doesn't make uh, sand-flavored ice cream or salt-and-pepper-flavored ice cream? It's because it wouldn't be any good. And why do you think nobody would buy it? Because it wouldn't be any good. So it looks like if we can make, um, and you say, well, couldn't we explain that just by people's psychology, adverting to people's psychology just as well? And the gastronomic value realist could say, sure. But it's being good just um, consists in its being the sort of thing that, um, you know, people with properly functioning taste systems um, appreciate. Right. Um, so there's nothing that we we don't have to worry about um, being ontological profligates and populating our universe with too many entities. It's you know goodness is no more uh, flavor is or good gastronomic goodness is no more an extra thing in the universe than the table is an extra thing in the universe over and above the molecules that it consists in, that it's composed of, or that it supervenes on. To use a fancy word. Likewise. Um, there's widespread agreement about this matter um, of whether sand-flavored ice cream is good or not. Um, and so the best explanation for that agreement is that sand-flavored ice cream really is lousy. And, um, you know, chocolate-flavored ice cream really is pretty good. Um, but, and, you know, you can go on and on from there through all the permutations. People who think sand-flavored ice cream is good don't realize what it tastes like or um, um, are biased against it, um, are, are biased in favor of it or, you know, 
are not sophisticated. You know, that sometimes feel said about people who have moral, um, you know, intransigent moral disagreement. Well, they're just not morally sophisticated enough. And you can see how that might shade off into um, attitudes towards other cultures and people that we would find rather distasteful. Um, but we could deploy those arguments in the context of gastronomic differences. But um, to defend against the argument from gastronomic disagreement, which would be, you know, which looks like it's pretty readily available. So it looks to me like, you know, the two theories have are fairly similarly plausible in a lot of ways. And I don't want to say that that proves that moral realism is false, but I do want to say that um, if you accept moral you know, realism, you might have to pay the price which is um, of accepting gastronomic value realism and, some people might find that, if you'll pardon the expression, rather distasteful. <laughs> well, I'm sure my listeners will be relieved that philosophers can have a sense of humor. That sounds like a pretty fun paper to, to read. Gastronomic realism has got a lot of jokes in it. One thing you should look for is instances, instances in which I use gastronomic terms in non-gastronomic contexts. I'll say things like, um, they'll have to cook up something better than this half-baked idea. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I salt the paper with them. You know, the paper's really liberally seasoned with this sort of expression. <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, finally, you're you're working on a book called Moral Irrealism. Yep. What do you hope to accomplish with that? Well, it's um, meant to be um, an academic book, so I don't hope to make any money off it. Um, mm -hmm. What I hope to do is to reach the philosophical community a little bit. There are so few of us anti-realists out there but I think the position really needs a good defense. And the error theory has um, some pretty good defenders, but my views are not quite, um, and I think of those people as philosophical allies in a way, but my views are a little different from theirs. And so what I'd like to do is get some of these arguments that I've been working on in the form of individual papers, you know, together into a more coherent work that the, the, the way I want to set it up is something like this. Look, um, people have thought the burden is on, the moral anti-realist or irrealist uh, to defend the view, and that a way to do that would be to give arguments against realism. So you don't really get a lot of arguments for realism made very explicitly. The realists don't really talk about the argument for moral agreement. That's my phrase. They don't talk about the argument for moral experience. That's my phrase. The argument from explanation is an argument against moral realism, and moral realists tend to give um, answers that have the following form, that argument doesn't defeat realism. Um, so what I want to do is try to start us off in a level playing field and then say, let's look at the arguments and see whether, uh, you know, which way they they lean. Mm -hmm. uh, they auto-incline us. And my guess is they auto-incline us, at least to some degree, more in the direction of anti-realism than realism. And the semantic arguments that I was mentioning early on about incoherentism are, you know, uh, among the arguments to be considered. So I hope to reach a philosophical audience. And, you know, I think the time is right to rehabilitate moral irrealism. And I would like to not get on that bandwagon. I would like to lead that bandwagon. I'd like to be one of the drum majors in that, uh, in that parade. Well, I very much look forward to that. Even though I currently consider myself a moral realist, I almost always tend to agree with moral anti-realists more often than the moral realists, because I find the moral, the arguments for moral realism are so 
poor um, as far as I can tell. So I, I very much look forward to reading your book when it's released. Do you have any idea when it will be released? Well, I, I can t- I'm certain of one thing, which is that it will, it will not be released until after I've finished writing it. Yes. And uh, I, think that's, I think that's pretty clear. And right now what I've got is a series of papers that, you know, if, you, if I died tomorrow, somebody could bind them together and it would almost be that book. But um, it's still going to take me some time to put it together, and there are other projects that I'm working on in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always more to do, so I'm not really quite sure. I, I have another project in the works that you won't find listed on my website, but I want to do a book with a colleague uh, of mine who's a moral realist and has written a book defending moral realism, Terence Cuneo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a great guy and a very fair-minded guy. And we, we want to do a book together called Moral Realism for and Against. Oh, great. And it may be that before Moral Realism comes out, you'll see Moral Realism for and Against out. And I think that would be a useful book, and we would like to make it something that, although it's accessible to advanced students in philosophy, is um, nevertheless a contribution to literature, sort of the state of the art of the debate. And you know, in a way shows where we agree and where we disagree, because we're both of the inclination to think that, to look for the commonalities uh, between us before we look for the differences, you know, and so there's a lot, there's an awful lot we agree on, there's some things we don't agree on, and um, trying to get that all into kind of sharp relief, I think could be very helpful. And since Terrence is such a uh, an amazing workhorse and an incredibly productive philosopher, I think uh, a little bit of that may rub off onto me, and uh, this project might get, might be completed even before more real, realism is done. I'd be fine with that. That's that's very exciting. I look forward so to that as well. Look, look for that at your local bookstore, yes. your local academic bookstore, uh, before too long. Well, I think that's all I've got, Don. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, um, it's my pleasure to come on the show, and I would do so anytime. Talk about just about anything. So, great. Thanks for having me.